This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wongal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, foregone all custom of exercises. And indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave overhanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire. Why, it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet, to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me, nor woman neither. Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Hamlet's speech from Act 2, Scene 2, read by our guest this week. He's an award-winning actor, screenwriter, director and published author. His Bell Shakespeare credits include the title roles in Hamlet and Tartuffe, and on screen he starred in the HBO miniseries The Pacific, among other major roles. He'll soon appear, COVID-permitting, opposite Tom Hanks in the new Baz Luhrmann film. And as a writer, he's currently developing the film The Portable Door with the Jim Henson Company and an adaptation of Marcus Zusak's novel The Messenger for Lingo Pictures. It is my great pleasure to welcome Leon Ford. Leon, welcome to Speak the Speech. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Leon, I'm so glad you chose Hamlet. Of course, um, uh, what a great moment in Bell Shakespeare's history, your, the production of Hamlet that you starred in. Now, tell us about this particular moment in the play. Why is Hamlet talking like this to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? Well, I, I love this speech so much and I loved doing it every night um, because he's, he's sort of in a position where, you know, he's discovered the truth or what he thinks is the truth. His, his, you know, father's been um, murdered by his uncle and he's sort of, it's at the earlier stages of him just um, trying to work out what to do and just butting his head against, because he's the sort of person who's just, you know, questions every single um, mm. uh, choice mm. he might make or might not make or even a choice to make a choice or not to make a choice or everything. He over, He's overthinking everything. Yeah. He's sort of spiralled into this mindset where nothing is there's, there's nothing makes mm. sense and there's no joy left in the world and I love it because it sort of shows someone who previously was quite probably quite optimistic yeah. and 
and enjoying life and saw the good in everything and and saw the beauty in man and everything but so he can sort of pull himself away from the former hamlet and look at how he is now and beautifully describe how you know um what probably a lot of people feel in in the throes of deep depression you know that nothing even the sun shining is is an assault on on him yeah, that's extraordinary. And, and what I find interesting is that we never actually get to meet what you might call the real Hamlet or the previous Hamlet. He, he's thrust straight into the middle of a uh, uh, of a tragedy, of a disaster. And so we never actually get to see Hamlet in good times with his mates um, as students. Is there any hint of that Hamlet anywhere in the play? Yeah, it's, it is a funny one, isn't it? Because these days we're sort of, you know, certainly as writers we're told quite specifically by producers or networks or, you know, maybe even theatre companies that you need to see the characters, you need to see the protagonist before the inciting incident. So you get a... Mm. I mean, even the writing books will tell you this. We want to see their normal life, then the inciting mm. incident. Yeah, They'll even yeah. give you a page number sometimes. Page 15, we want to see the inciting incident and then <laughs> they question themselves and then, you know, they take action after page 30, which is usually mm. act two. Shakespeare, you're right, has thrust um, Hamlet, the inciting incident, you know, has already happened and has thrust Hamlet right into the, uh, or thrown him into the deep end and that's when we find him. So it's sort of up, up to the director and the actor, I think, to find moments, which you have to do because that's mm, mm. sort of fleshing out the three-dimensional character um, to see mm. how he was, to get glimpses of how he was before his father died and before he was in mourning or questioning his own, you know, um, self-worth. So, yeah, there are moments with Horatio, of course, where the banter gives you a hint of what it was like and there's, there's, um, there's sadness with Ophelia. They mm. sort of mourn their previous flirtations and things and yeah. certainly he, there are new versions of Hamlet that, echo what he must have been like previously but yeah it's it's you're right it's a, such an interesting way to um introduce a character to an audience isn't it in the throes yeah. of disaster straight into the middle of it and he seems to be expressing as you said uh, um depression what we might call depression now um although perhaps he doesn't have a word for it so he needs this whole speech to explain how it is that he's feeling but um He's already suspicious, um, I think you mentioned, of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern at this point and yet really opens himself up to them. Why do you think he does that? He really makes himself vulnerable in front of them. Yeah, I don't think he um, hides that from anyone really. I mean, mm. even if he's suspicious of his of these two friends, you know, them just turning up... Um, conveniently when he's um you know uh acting so strange and why the the whole court must be looking at him suspiciously particularly you know the king and polonius and and uh all of their side so these two friends turn up he sees straight through that and yet he still shares with them how he's feeling he doesn't share with him why he doesn't mm. tell them mm. um what is really going on but um he, he gives them enough, which is kind of, you know, respectful, but to their friendship, he gives them enough to let them know that he, he's not well um, mentally, but or he's still, you know, flailing about mentally, I suppose. But, uh, mm. yeah, I, I don't think he... 
hides that emotional state from anyone, really. It, yeah, you know, yeah, his, absolutely. It, 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 in court or his um, girlfriend, he just puts it in different ways, doesn't he? He puts it yeah. with Polonius in a different frame, different yes. context, and yes, um, sure. with Ophelia in another different context. Yeah, absolutely. And look, Hamlet, as you said, also is always talking, he's overthinking, he's overhearing himself constantly and hearing what he's saying and and very self-critical. How do you approach playing a character like that when you you have to come back to it every night, you have to kind of climb that mountain every single night? How, How do you approach playing a character like that? Yeah, I was just I was I was just thinking uh, if if he was sort of diagnosed as depressed, that would be the end of the play, wouldn't it? So it is it is a real sort of it's fortunate that that word didn't exist or wasn't used mm. in that that term back then because we get to see a real exploration of uh, of all the different stages of grief and stages of depression and levels and. Um, trying to work himself out of it. To to do that every night is actually, a, it, I mean, look, it's been a long time so um, since I played it, so I've probably forgotten all the, the um, you know, those nights where you have to wrench yourself yep. out of out of the bag and, you know, like, <laughs> a, like a dog that doesn't want to go to the vet or something yeah, some nights and right. it's just scraping your claws against the floor because now I just see it as, you know, easily one of the if not the highlight of my career because it 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 just gives you it's gives you everything and Mm. and lets you explore every facet of yourself as an actor and i'm sure i had difficult nights but if if what you want to do is act and what you want to do is portray incredible characters and emotions and stretch Mm. yourself as far as you can go if that's your thing then then that's the best there is absolutely there's no struggle at all you know and as I recall, your your portrayal, Hamlet, was quite funny. Certainly initially, uh, he was light, he was funny um, until he could no longer be. Did, is, that, is that a conscious choice or is that just kind of what came naturally in the rehearsal process? Well, I think John, John from the very beginning said we're just, there's, there's no one Hamlet, there's just your Hamlet. Yep this time and last time there was someone else's Hamlet and he, he obviously did his Hamlet and you know right. um, so from the very outset um, he wanted to explore my Hamlet and I think that's why this speech um, particularly was my favourite moment every night was because I think my Hamlet was optimistic yeah. and th- was a very different young man before this all happened to what we see on stage. So I really, you know, going back to what we were talking about before, I really wanted to show um, who he was. Yeah, and what he'd lost. As much yeah. as possible, what mm-hmm. he'd lost. Yeah, it, that's right. In, and and in, in many ways, dramaturgically, I suppose, or from a directing point of view, I think we both decided that that's what makes it even sadder is that when he dies at the end and when you see him careering out of control, his mind and his emotions, it, it, it makes it sadder because maybe we feel like we've come to know what he's lost, yes. you know, and what what his family and friends have lost. Yeah, and Ophelia certainly um, articulates that really clearly, doesn't she, in her speech after um, the nunnery scene where she says, what a noble mind is here or thrown. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, as you said, there are, there are so many different kinds of Hamlet and I suppose every generation has its iconic Hamlets. 
and uh, you were quite young when you played Hamlet. How old were you? You, you were in your 20s, weren't you? Yeah, I was in, I, was, I must have been about 27. So, right. but I certainly didn't play. That's probably about, uh, well, there's a lot of conjecture about how old he was, isn't there? But um, mm. that's probably about right in my mind for how old yeah. he should be, somewhere around the late 20s. But I, I didn't, I think I was playing him more as an 18 year old, really. Yeah, 18, yeah, 19. absolutely. You were playing him very young. But yeah. do you feel that pressure of all, you know, all the the previous Hamlets kind of on your shoulders during the rehearsal process, or does that not even come up? You just kind of approach the text word by word and off you go. Um, yeah, no, I didn't let myself have that pressure. I, I had to sort of downplay the whole experience until it was all over in, in order to not freak out and yep. not um, just decide I can't, I'm not capable and I can't do this. So I, in, in my head, which I, I sometimes do for huge moments in history, like we're going through right now, mm-hmm. I often just try and um, put it in perspective and so each night particularly early in the season at the opera house I would I clearly remember saying to myself okay what's the worst that could happen is that halfway through <laughs> sullied flesh you just go nah you know what I can't do this you walk <laughs> off so there's going to be 300 people that 400 people that just go oh that was odd well and they've all got something to talk about and then it goes down as like one of those nights that you know theatre does create mm-hmm. and then so you're sort of playing that whole um, experience as a reality through my head in my dressing room. I just it made me go, yeah. So just go out there and see what happens. Mm. And so I did. The, I, th- I feel like I did the same. Although I hadn't fully um, create, uh, you know, created that play in my head during rehearsals because it was just all encompassing. But I, 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 I think I spent most of the rehearsals just going, "What's the worst that can happen? Eh? <laughs> You're a failure." <laughs> you know, at least you, you know, you still become an anecdote. So. At age of 27, you played Hamlet, but obviously you encountered Shakespeare before that and through drama school and so on. But where did, you, where did Shakespeare start for you? What, what's your Shakespeare origin moment? Can you, can you pinpoint it? I, I clearly remember coming up to, because I grew up in Canberra, I clearly remember coming up to Sydney um, with my family to see Romeo and Juliet at the Opera House. Mm. And I'm not 100% sure who was in it, but I, maybe um, Luciano was yeah. Romeo? I'm not sure. A long time ago. Big steps, you know, um, on the set and absolutely had a ball. And I spent half the time going, who are those people though? Like what do they do at when the curtain comes down? Do the they, actors, you mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like do they just, do they live in mansions or palaces or yeah. do they, you know, are they normal people? Do they catch the train? You know, and so that was theatre as well as the, the words just, I don't know who directed it and who you know who was performing most of the roles but it was just beautifully done and the Mm. words just lifted off the stage and the page and all that sort of stuff and then you know look it's not just because I'm on a Bell Shakespeare podcast but Canberra and Bell Shakespeare have this incredible um uh union and partnership over the years from the very beginning and I saw Paulson do Hamlet in the circus tent at the aquarium down there oh you did yeah when I was in high school Yeah, yeah yeah that's right and um the headlines were like Shakespeare in jeans. This is outrageous. Yeah. You know, how can we? You, <laughs> right. you know, and that was their the big. I don't know whether that was a publicity push or local Canberra journalism, but um, mm. we all went along. It felt like the whole city went along because finally, you know, something was coming to Canberra. And uh, apart from John Farnham, who used to come along, and um, <laughs> it was just mind blowing. It was just it. Uh, yeah, it changed me as well. So mm. um, it is one of those unusual rare stories where I got to um, go on and play with the company that 
sort of inspired me. And then, yeah. of course, there's movies like the Mel Gibson movie, I think, you know, was yes. wonderful. But, um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Um, and then Branner's four-hour epic. Did you watch that one? I do remember that, yeah. 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 I mean, that's, <laughs> that's for real sort of... Um, there's, there wasn't there the two-hour version and the four-hour version. Yeah, I think the studio yeah. said, "Okay, you can do the four-hour if you give us a two-hour." Yeah, and, um, and off he went. Yeah, God, what a what a gift for him. Yeah, I know. But you could see why some things were cut, couldn't you? you sort of yeah, go, mm-hmm, like, right. <laughs> that's very obscure. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you've said that. You've already said that too. Yeah. Yes, there is a bit of that. I mean, it's interesting to me that, in fact, there never was a four-hour Hamlet in Shakespeare's own time. It just didn't exist. Shakespeare would have written the whole play and then they would have done edits themselves. Yes, so, depending so, on what, yes. what's working and every yeah. night. They, they probably edited every night, didn't they? Depending I would on, say you know. I would say they did and quite heavily. So I think yeah. we should feel okay about editing Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think absolutely. That's fine. Yeah. So you were Bell Shakespeare's third... Um, Hamlet. It was uh, John Paulson, then Chris Stollery, then you. Uh, then after you um, uh, came Brendan Cowell mm-hmm. and then Josh McConville and then most recently Harriet Gordon-Anderson. So have you spoken to any of the other Hamlets? Have you spoken to anyone else who's played Hamlet or for other companies, Toby Schmitz, you and Leslie? Have you spoken to any of them? Uh, of the about, about playing Hamlet? About playing or? the role, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a funny little club, isn't it? It's mm. um, occasionally... I remember one, I think maybe we were at um, Josh's Hamlet opening night and there were suddenly <laughs> there were like four or five Hamlets in the in the foyer with Yui and Toby <laughs> and, and Brendan and me and um, yeah. probably Stollery or something. And it sort of felt like, <laughs> you know, when um, dogs check each other out at the park or something or like we weren't sniffing each other or anything, but it was just like, ah, ah, hello, you know, and little hairs going on the back of our neck, not in a, not in a, any animosity, but just like nice. um, spotting each other across the yeah, across sure. the foyer. It was quite it was quite yeah. fun. But yeah, I mean, we, I, I personally, I've probably discussed things with Toby a little bit about Hamlet, and um, not so much. Well, Stollery was in was Claudius in my Hamlet, so yeah, he, right. he was a great yeah. source of um, uh, you know um, information. Particularly, he's very good on the text, and but he also sort of stepped back and didn't from memory he didn't really advise me too much but um mm-hmm. it was um yeah you do find yourself getting caught a little bit in discussions and then realize how uh you know it just seems a little bit too um i don't know just everyone yeah it seems like something i don't want to say i'm trying to think of a nice way of saying it where <laughs> you know it, it's it's like if you suddenly have run into some old friends who you realize you all love model railways or something and yeah. then everybody else gets bored and walks away while you guys go do you know what though i found the best mini pine tree and, you know so you don't want it, it, there's only small occasions where you can go into the intricacies really of nerd out yeah yeah that's right mm. yeah yeah amazing so then when you went to drama school um did you think that shakespeare is going to be a, a big part of my life this i'm going to really pursue this uh, I did actually. I I really wanted to. I I left and went after one year. I went straight into the um, what was called the Actors at Work at Bell Shakespeare, which is now the Players, I think, isn't mm-hmm. it? Is mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Um, pretty pretty much soon after um, drama school, because again, because of the the, I'd come straight from Canberra to to Nepean to drama school, yeah. and um, I still had it in me that I loved that I really wanted to do. Um, some big productions and we didn't do, I think we did one at, at, uh, university, but, um, 
immediately we were still watching you know the bell shakespeare shows every time we went down to canberra so yeah i did yeah Mm. excellent and so now, obviously, your career has taken on so many different facets. You're writing, you're developing projects for major companies. Is Shakespeare still there in, in the back of your head as, as something you want to keep coming back to? Yeah, well, the funny thing is, and this is a big note out, but it actually just helps. I, you know, when you're, I'm writing two, two screenplays at the moment yep. at the same time, which is pretty normal. In fact, that's quite low for most people. Um, most writers are working on a few things. But I've also got one tab open on... Um, on Hamlet and oh. it, it really does just to like I haven't been doing this for a while but it's just this year really hmm. I've gone back to it because um, you kind of, it kind of gives you this um, rich meal feeling or well-fed feeling or something when yep. you're struggling with writing and I don't know I don't quite understand consciously what it's doing but I know that it's helping in some way like it might be um, it might be sending blood to a part of the brain that I've you know, been ignoring or something, yep. and that that those, those neurons are all going ooh, 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 and getting excited, and yep. and yep. somehow it's it's. I mean, I'm not turning everything into old English or anything, thankfully, because I'd be <laughs> fired. But it, it it does sort of trigger ideas and and just mm. beauty in in the world because that's basically what he was showing us, wasn't it? You know, in all its forms. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like it feeds you creatively no matter what you're doing, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, that's it right. It unlocks something in your brain that, that, that unlocks some pathway of creativity and, and critical thought almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it's sort of like a, because I do those seven minute workouts, it's sort of like that for your body, you know, yeah, like right. where you just like read a passage or or, 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 um, or a speech or from anything, particularly Hamlet though, but from anything. And yeah, you're right. It does sort of... It just um, awakens that way of thinking. You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm James Evans, and my guest today is Leon Ford. Now, Leon, you've spent quite a bit of time in America over the last few years. And uh, the Americans do love their Shakespeare, I've got to say. They, they absolutely love it. Um, they, they put it on all the time. Have you noticed anything different about American Shakespeare's as opposed to what we do over here? No, I, well, I was in LA, so there's not a lot of theatre there, unfortunately. But mm. um, I, I get it. I understand why um, they love their Shakespeare because Americans, I love Americans. They're so verbal and yep. um, front of the mouth and expressive and that can turn into overly um an, an analysis over analysis of their own psychology and whatever mm-hmm. you know like you can be sitting in a cafe and two people are talking so intimately yeah. about you know why they feel they've been ignored in their marriage for the last two years and why you know why <laughs> they may feel like they're you know um losing at work and or, or whatever but they're so they don't care who's listening and they're so they use words so beautifully and mm. i also noticed that when our kids were at school in america we've only just come back in the last few months but the kids their age the vocabulary that they're being taught mm. is is beyond most adults you know and it yeah. may not stick and it may stick for some or some words might fascinate them and some words that they'll just have no idea and never want to see again but mm. The, the fact that they're being thrown these beautiful big words that, and then explained, and this is just in an elementary school, it's not a particularly fancy school, but mm. it's just the LA system, was um, 
to me was really eye-opening and, and kind of, I hope, I'm not sure it's happening as much here. Um, we certainly don't use it culturally as much, big words. I think if you start to, even within friends groups, if you start to, you know, play with language and, and um, uh, choo choose a word that you haven't used all year or something, mm. there, there mm. can still be this feeling in Australian culture of like, oh, look at you. Fancy. You know, yeah. yep. oh, ubiquitous, oh, mm. you know, whatever. Mm. Not even, <laughs> yeah. You know, so, but in America, it's just, words are just... Um, applauded and, and uh, mm. um, relished. And I can see why, you know, Shakespeare goes down well there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other thing I love about um, American actors specifically is that they actually open their mouths. And this is a problem we have with especially young young Australian actors is, you know, that tendency to clamp the jaw shut and yeah. um, and keep the mouth shut. Whereas, you know, we need to embrace these huge vowels <laughs> in order to, to capture Shakespeare's emotions, right? Yeah, that's right. And I, I mean, even in the last you know, week or so when I was looking back on this speech, the vowels are the are just so um emotionally useful. Like yeah. they when yeah. when I when when he like this is complete nerd out, but when it when it starts with <laughs> I have of late, though wherefore I know not lost all my mirth, mm. I went through all the vowels of that mm -hmm. the other day and they're all a e e Right, sure. And they all and but they're they're all the vowels and they start open. I have of late, though wherefore I know not lost all my mirth. And then wow. it ends with mirth. <laughs> and if you do it without the consonants, it still makes you feel like you've lost all your mirth, you know. Yeah. And yeah. and to not do to not serve those vowels, mm. God, I'm looking at myself like, God, you're a nerd. But to not <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the right place to do it, isn't it? Like That's if right. anywhere you can do this. <laughs> yeah. Um to not use those vowels properly is just a real shame, isn't it? Mm. Emotionally, you know. Mm. Yeah, and then you know quintessence of dust, oh, all, all yeah. those s's just drawing out. It's almost like the the life is just hissing out of him. That's right. Yeah. So the consonants then become more just as useful in other ways. Yeah. Mm, but um, mm. and it's when when well, it was explained to me too as a it's probably Stollery who explained it. But when it was explained to me as a young younger young actor, um, uh, I couldn't believe that it was done on purpose. Mm. I, I literally was like, no, you can't, he can't write an amazing story and have all these characters and use language mm. to mm. portray things that not the definition of the words, but the actual, he chooses words that mean what he wants to say, but also sound, you know, like a poet does. How they feel, yes. How they yes. feel, yeah. Mm. You, it's fair enough to do that in a small passage for a poet or something, but to do that, you know, it's just mind boggling, <laughs> which is, yeah. Absolutely. Love it. So, Leon, you played Hamlet in 2003 and then we didn't see you at Bell uh, for another decade or so and then you came back and did a Moliere adaptation, Peter Evans directed Justin Fleming's adaptation of Tartuffe. What was that like? Oh, that was a joy. I feel like I was um, uh, miscast in, at the outset, which is in a good way. Why I mean, is that? I, what do you mean? Well, I always feel like I'm miscast, really, to be honest. I always feel like, why are they giving that to me? But Tartuffe, the one, the one I saw was Yasek Komen, mm -hmm. you know, back in the 90s probably in, at the STC. And Yasek is just like a, a beautiful, sexy, sweaty animal, you know, and, <laughs> and, and just ate up anything that was in within half a metre of him. You know, he just gorged on everything. And I was like... I said to Pete, I remember early on, if this if this is our Tartuffe, then we have to, then I I'd like to find the the outwardly um, 
I sort of started modeling myself on those religious figures who deep down or behind closed doors are Yasset Komen awful, but mm. on the outside look like, you know, um, a politician or the boy next yeah, door right. or yeah. something like that. Because I can't change how I am physically. So, mm -hmm. um, so I think from that, mo from that moment of understanding that this version, again, like, you know, every complex character, um, you've got to find your version of it. And so once I found that and, and I think Pete just sort of looked at me like, um, yeah, we've already, we already designed you like that. And we've already yeah, right. made yeah. that decision. Mm -hmm. Glad you could come to, come to the party. <laughs> um, uh, so that was his plan all along. And, you know, once I found that, it sort of opened up for me and it was, a, it was so much fun, so much joy in that um, production and in that cast. Um, yeah, we had an absolute ball. Beautiful. Early on in your career, after you did Actors at Work, um, you did a couple of shows and one of them was the Henry IV. Uh, was it, did you do Henry IV and Henry V with Bell, yeah, with, one uh, year with Joel Edgerton? That's right, yeah. First year, 98, we did Henry IV, the two parts together. Mm. And then, um, excuse me, 99, we did uh, Henry V, the follow-up, the sequel, um, with a very similar cast. And um, I was, you know... Most mostly, Lord, they come, my Lord, you know, um, and a couple of five-line speeches and stuff about the troops that we can't show you yep. on stage actually doing something just over there. Yeah, um, sure. But uh, a great I, learning experience, though. Oh, right? incredible, I mean, yeah. incredible! And again, that's that's the joy of this um, this company is that they've done it for so many people, so many actors, where you know um, you get to start where your level is or where your experience is at and grow with each other and with the company. And um, my, my pathway to Hamlet was just um, just a dr dream of, well, because then I did Midsummer Night's Dream and, you know, and then, Hamlet, you know, like it, would just, it just became more and more responsibility and more and more opportunity to, um, to, to you know, perform different aspects of myself and of, of different characters, you know, it was a, it was a joy. Beautiful. Okay, Leon, we have one segment left in our little podcast here today. This is what we call the final five. I've got five rapid fire questions for you. I need five rapid answers. Here, here we go. Number one, as an actor, do you like to be the lover or the villain? Lover. That's great. Everyone says villain. Thank you for saying love. Oh, it just came out. Yeah. <laughs> Good. What do you think is the most underrated Shakespeare play for you? Um, uh, I have fond memories of seeing actually Joel Edgerton at drama school in Love's Labour's Lost. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I'd be very curious now to see the gender politics involved in it. I have memories. I think the women come out on top at the end. They sort of show them how stupid they've been or something. But, yeah, I thought it was so, it's so much fun. Yeah, that's right. Oh, it's, a, it's a tricky play to do because it's such a big cast. I think John Bell always balked at it because because it was such a big cast. Oh, of course, but, yeah. there's so many couples. I'm, it's a bit door slammy though, isn't it? That's what I loved about it. I yep. love a farce and I yep. love, you know, it, the tattoo, the Moliere's, and I remember that being um, quite farcy. Yeah, farcical. loads of fun. Mm. Okay, mm. so who's your favourite actor um, who you've never worked with before you'd love to work with? Uh, can I, what, anyone in the yeah. universe? Anyone, go on. Oh, um, Mark Rylance, actually. Oh, wow. I love yeah. That. Yeah. I think he'd be the sort of person where you just cannot not be in it because you look mm. into those eyes and just uh, you're there with him, you know. Yeah, incredible. What's your dream Shakespeare role you haven't played yet? Uh, 
having said the lover, I can't. It's oh, the Scottish King probably. I'd love oh. to just you know do a mm. version of that that hasn't been seen before. But um, mm. he, he's dragged into the den, the evil spiral, or Benedict. You know, I'd love to do um, oh, much ado. Beautiful yeah. role. And if you weren't an actor, Leon, or a writer, what would you be doing? Do you know? I th- well, I love. I'd probably be a l- be into linguistics. Yes. Or a builder, which a builder? surprises really? me. Yeah, but have you done home renos before? No, but I just built a treehouse over the lockdown, <laughs> and I really had the best time because I think, do you know? I think it's because as a writer, you spend so much time on these things that are probably never going to get made. You know, so you just you're just tweaking these scenes and making it funny and not funny and tragic and getting the timing right. Mm. And so often they don't get made. Mm. And it's why I love cooking too, is because building I, building this treehouse, I just went, here's some timber, here's a tool and there's a tree. And when I finish, there'll be a finished product that, you know, I'll be able to look at and go, there it is, you know. Yep. Um, yep. So, I, so I'm sort of attracted to, yeah. Were you like good at that. it? Oh, yeah. I got better. <laughs> I got, I you know, I... Um, I was bad at the beginning. You can sort of, the treehouse goes down from the top down to the lower levels and the top levels are a little bit um, more amateur. And um, <laughs> the more the more chaps I spoke to at the hardware shop, the more, and I got to know them, the more hints they gave me. And, you know, sure. I sort of became better at it. So, yeah. Well, Leon, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you so much for joining us on Speak the Speech. Likewise, I've had a lovely time. Thank you, Jimmy. Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the Speak the Speech podcast through your listening platform.